Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love and Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Welcome to Love and Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. We all know our families have a profound impact on us. Typically, we think of this in terms of our childhood experiences and their lasting imprint upon us. But our family of origin continues to influence us throughout our lives. As Elliot and I discussed last week, our family dynamics shape us throughout our adulthood, not only in terms of those lingering effects from childhood, but also in the current day. As we navigate our adult family relationships with parents and siblings, oftentimes these family rules, roles, and expectations in adulthood impact us in ways we would not expect, like we talked about last week when it comes to our love life. Today, we continue the theme of family dynamics, focusing now on families in which a divorce has occurred. Again, we tend to think of children grappling with the breakdown of their parents' marriage. But what about when you're an adult and your parents split up? In the U.S. alone, more than 300,000 couples over the age of 50 divorce every year, and this trend is growing. So if you include the adult children involved, between 900,000 and 1.2 million people are impacted by the dissolution of these marriages. The term gray divorce has entered the lexicon to describe couples who part ways later in life. But despite the prevalence of this occurrence, we don't have a lot of resources for those going through this, which is exactly why psychotherapists Carol R. Hughes and Bruce R. Fredenberg wrote their book, Home Will Never Be the Same Again, a guide for adult children of gray divorce. They're here today to share with us what they've learned in their research and clinical practice. Here's a little bit more about Bruce and Carol. Dr. Carol Hughes holds a doctoral degree in clinical psychology. As a student, she was a two-time Fulbright scholar. Carol then taught at Saddleback College for 10 years and now works in private practice in Laguna Hills, California. She's a family-focused divorce professional and has assisted hundreds of divorcing families in her roles as therapist, child and co-parenting specialist, divorce coach, and mediator. Bruce Fredenberg is a licensed marriage and family therapist and is board certified in clinical hypnosis. He served as an instructor at Saddleback College and at the National Medical Review School in Southern California. He also created and taught parenting classes for adoptive and foster parents. In his private practice in Laguna Hills, California, Bruce specializes in chronic pain management, trauma, addictions, mediation, and collaborative divorce. Bruce helps families as a therapist, divorce coach, co-parenting specialist, and mediator. My interview with Dr. Carol Hughes and Bruce Fredenberg, right after this. Have you heard? You can now listen to my book, Single is the New Black. Don't wear white till it's right. As you know, I wrote the book I wish had been available to me when I was single. 
So obviously, it's not about how to snag a man. Rather, it's all about how to stay strong amidst single shaming and remain true to yourself and never settle for anything less than an extraordinary relationship. Find it on Audible or iTunes. And for a free sample, check out Chapter 11 of Single as the New Black in Episode 145 of Love and Life. Carol and Bruce, welcome to the program. Thank you for having us, Karen. Yes, yes. Thank you. We're here to talk about your book, Home Will Never Be the Same Again, a guide for adult children of gray divorce. Now, the term gray divorce was new to me, but as I got into the book, I thought, oh, thank goodness someone is speaking to this. Mostly because from your work, obviously, you know this all too well. And I think everyone knows it at some level that just because divorce has become relatively common doesn't mean the impact of divorce is somehow less than, it's somehow been diminished for any person, certainly children, but also adult children. This divorce is exactly as you put it. It changes their home such that it will never be the same again. And it also is the first time they went through divorce and the effects are in fact profound. And I think because divorce has become more common and perhaps the stigma has been reduced, now we tend to not maybe realize how grave and profound the experience is. So thank you for your work and for writing this and bringing this to our attention and maybe speak a little bit to what inspired you as therapists to address this topic. I know in the beginning of the book, you talk about your own experience, your personal experiences with divorce, Carol's parents divorced very early. And then Bruce, your parents almost divorced when you were a young man in your early 30s. But maybe speak a little bit to your personal connection to this topic and then to your professional connection. Okay, I'll start. Uh, Yes, my parents divorced when I was three and a half. So I never knew them being together. And I was raised by my dad and my grandmother and never really saw my mom growing up. This population was never a population I thought I would be working with as a therapist because of my own history and just didn't want to deal with people in that amount of pain. But as the universe or fate or our destiny or whatever we want to call it often happens, uh, as a therapist, I was working alongside people who were getting divorced and working with people who were getting divorced. And I got to know some family law attorneys who were very ethical and family-focused and more peace-oriented. And so in 2003, uh, they invited me to join with them in creating a, a group of professionals, family lawyers, financial and mental health, who wanted to work together in teams in out-of-court processes, helping people keep their focus on their family, their children, extended family, all of that, and not do the typical bloodbath that we hear so often about. And one of the things that we did to educate the public was to write blogs. So several of the attorneys, one in particular, said to me one day, you know, Carol, adult children are stakeholders in their in their parents' divorce and they're ever present, so to speak, in the room. And that really grabbed my attention. And he said, why don't you write some blogs about adult children? And going through divorce, you know, their parents' divorce. 
and some of our other attorneys embrace the idea of adult children as well. Uh, and so I started writing some blogs. And then a, a New York Times reporter in uh, winter of 16 was writing a series about adult children of gray divorce. And she found me on the internet where everything lives <laughs> and uh, asked me if she could interview me. And I said, sure, because I like to go for, you know, when things come to me like that, opportunities. And uh, after the article was published several months later, a literary agent from one of the uh, literary uh, agencies in New York City contacted me. And we talked and she said, gosh, there isn't anything out there on adult children of gray divorce. Would you be interested in writing a book about it? And again, I said, sure, not knowing what I was really getting into. And because Bruce and I have been friends for several d decades and our our spouses, and we all know each other. I invited him, and the rest is history, as they say. It took four years of research and writing and rewriting, and then the book was published last year in the middle of the COVID pandemic. Yeah, and I hope that was people were home and ready to read. But I don't know. Maybe that was a maybe that was a hard time to publish to promote a book, rather. Yeah. <laughs> that would be great if that was true. Some right. people were at home ready to read. Other people were, you know, just hiding out. But uh, yeah. we were told that the uh, book industry did suffer during COVID. But we have been presenting to a lot of professional organizations and invited on podcasts and radio shows. And when we present the information, people always tell us how, how useful it is for them. So we're we're gratified for that. Yeah, for sure. And Bruce, you were saying in the book that your parents almost, you were almost uh, experiencing yourself a great divorce. You were, I think, 31 or in your early 30s. And uh, if I remember correctly, your mother confided in you that she was going to leave your father. She didn't end up doing that, but you were struck by, as a young man who was married himself, and you were struck by just how, how, much in shock you were and how painful and how you felt. I remember distinctly that you talked about, you felt like you had the secret from your father and the, the, the allegiance to both parents. It just was much more disruptive than you would have anticipated. Yes. Yes. That's exactly what happened. My mother, uh, my parents had argued. Uh, that's what I remember about the relationship was they, they argued a lot and loudly. And, oh, uh, okay. and at times I thought they should get divorced. And when I, I'm originally from Toronto and, uh, Divorce was pretty rare, at least in anybody in our extended family at that time. And then when I was in high school, my parents moved to California. And then, you know, about 15 years later, when I was about 30, 31, I was in, in about finished up graduate school. And my mother uh, had told me she was planning to leave my dad, but not to tell anybody yet. And she had cancer, so it was recurring. And then she realized she'd never get insurance again, so she never did do it. And then she eventually died. But at the time, you know, I really was hit was hard to process and thinking back on it, you know, I, I had that experience for something that you've thought about is really different than when it actually happens. Mm. Like I, I, when I thought maybe my parents should divorce, but you know, there was looking back, there was that stability of the family, even if it was an arguing family and it did disturb me. And I felt guilty, had to hide the secret from my father. I didn't, even to ever tell my two brothers because, uh, you know, what am I going to do? She, she asked me not to tell. And so there I was. And which one of the things we do tell parents is uh, don't make your adult children their co your confidant. 
Go yeah. tell your best friend or get a therapist because it's, it's really disruptive to ask child to collude with the other parent to keep a major secret. And so when we were writing this book, I, I recalled that incident and you know, I thought, wow, that's even my own life and I'd forgotten about it. Yeah. And I want to continue on with that theme. Just a little bit about my background. My dissertation was on individuation from family of origin and identity development in college students. So I'm interested in, I'm a developmental psychologist and I'm interested obviously throughout the lifespan as you speak to in the book quite extensively. And I think one of the things with that confidant piece that stuck out to me as well, because I thought, what happens is we think about some of these family dynamics and we think about more when children are younger, but so much of that triangulation can occur with adults because the the adult parent now is going through her own or his own crisis and looking to their adult child is, oh, well, you're like a friend now. Well, and yes, in some ways, yes, but certainly with something like this, making the child your confidant puts a burden on that child that they are not, it's not their, it's not their job to make you feel okay about this process. And as you both spoke to in the book, so many adult children find themselves now caring for their own children. And now the parents are divorced and they're going, oh my gosh, you know, mom hasn't been single since she was 19 years old and she's going to be single. And she, maybe this divorce is absolutely the right thing, but then they are worried about their parent. It's a lot of trying to navigate these relationships and the changes therein, I think, can catch everyone off guard. Yes. And, and one of the things that Carol and I talked about when we were writing the book, it, it, you know, it struck me when I was, I forget what chapter it was on, but I was talking to Carol about it. And we both sort of, I had this aha, the, the parents themselves, because they're so caught up in their own emotions of fear or anger or despair or excitement or whatever, they don't really notice what their, what their adult children are going through. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes invisible to them, but then the adult children, just you know suddenly have this this big burden in front of them and the parents themselves are adults and they're feeling pain it should be obvious that being an adult doesn't protect you from pain and yet you'll, you'll hear oh well at least they're lucky it didn't happen when they were kids you know Right. And I was struck by that throughout the book because so many of the instances you guys share, some of your clients and some of the work you've done with adult children of divorce, and so many of these adults, they heard those messages, which only minimize their experience and cause them to not feel the support from even friends or coworkers or anyone else. When a, a divorce happens in those young children, everyone is, is and, and rightly so, very much concerned about the children. If the kid is 25, kid in quotes, 25, 35, 45, Everyone's like, oh, they're, they're fine. They're an adult. Yeah, exactly right. You know, when in retrospect, when we pointed out to people, in fact, you maybe recall in the uh, introduction, Bill Eddy, an attorney who does really great work at the High Conflict Institute that he, he founded. And he said when he started to read our book, he went back through his last 20 or 25 cases and discovered that I think about a third of them were adult children involved, but because they were spread out, he never made the connection between, you know, wow, yeah, this is happening to them. And the legal system says, oh, don't worry, they don't matter. And it's really seductive for parents to believe their kids are going to be okay. So it's an, it's an easy sell. Oh, good. One less thing to worry about. Uh, an authority figure just told me my kids are going to be fine. Don't worry. 
Yeah, right. Yes, I think it is seductive, as Bruce said, to just think, well, our children are adults and they'll be fine. But I don't know about you, Karen, and I know Bruce and I agree. I have yet to meet an adult who goes through divorce, even if they wanted the divorce and are happy to be out of the marriage, who doesn't report some negative, painful feelings. So why would we think that the adult children of the parents who are divorcing wouldn't have some negative, painful feelings as well. This is their family of origin that's basically falling apart. Some of the adult children say, uh, my family's dead. And that's exactly it. And you think about, and even the cover of your book, you have this home, like picture of a house, and it's being torn apart. And the levels of disruption, they're profound. I mean, it goes into every holidays. Now say it's an adult child, they're 45 and the parents are getting divorced and their daughter is going to get married in the next couple of years. And then now that's awkward because of who's going to sit with whom. And this is, there's so many layers to it. And so I just Mm -hmm. appreciate you bringing, just shedding some light on this. And people have felt dismissed by this as if they don't have the right because they're grown to have the deep feelings. And so I just love that you're providing that because just feeling that validation, as we know, as therapists is, is powerful in and of itself. Right. Yeah. Because a common, a common phrase sentence that adult children say, and then the research shows as well, we feel invisible. We feel alone. There's no one to talk to. We're ignored. We're invalidated. None of those are good feelings or experiences. No. And again, as we spoke to a moment ago, people, the adult children are now put in this strange position of having to take care of their, or be worried about their parents' emotions. Also, they might be, as you spoke to, being pulled in, in this triangulation. Because again, I think when parents get divorced earlier, they know don't badmouth my spouse to my children because that's their mother still and they don't get another mother. I can get a new wife, but they don't get a new mother and I don't want to do that. But because an adult child, the parents may be more likely to say things that they know they shouldn't, but oh, well, they're an adult. They'll be fine with it. (laughs) No, they won't be fine with it. In fact, one of the things we will often recommend to parents in our practice uh, is that they can be proactive and go to their own siblings, which are the aunts and uncles of their children, and in some cases, uh, the grandparents of their children, and tell each one of them that they don't want their their child or children to be dragged into bash the other parent conversations. And those are really hard to overcome later on because eventually at the end of the day, they are going to be divorced and there is going to be a resolution and they're going to discover that the airline miles that they were fighting over are not nearly as impactful as now they have a bad relationship with their grown children or, and maybe even not allowed to see their grandchildren because they were so disruptive to the family that their child's spouse no longer wants them to come over for the kids' birthdays or graduations because of the tension that it causes. Sure. That makes perfect sense. And I love that you were providing some proactive strategies because it's we're all human and there's that tendency to want to have someone to gripe to, but let's make it a therapist or let's make it some friends who are in your circle. Let's leave it out of the family so we can avoid bringing that to the family dynamics. Right. It just creates more pain and trauma with a T as in Tom 
for the adult children and for their children if they have them, extended family members, community members. I'd love to connect with you via my weekly newsletter. Joining the Love and Life email list ensures you're the first to know everything going on in the Love and Life family. You'll receive insider perk pricing for consultations and events, and it's the best way to keep in touch when I do what the research suggests is very healthy and take breaks from social media. Subscribe on my website, loveandlifemedia.com. And as a bonus, you'll get my free Empowered Dating Playbook. A quote that I pulled from your book that really struck me was some advice that divorcing parents, gray divorce parents could keep in mind is know that your adult children may not be as happy for you as you are for yourself. The parents, even if it's the more wounded parent, are still trying to look forward to the rest of their lives. But the adult children are grieving what they're losing, their intact family, their identity, as you were saying, you studied the identity with family of origin, Karen, they're losing all of that. And they're dealing with those losses and grieving. Uh, whereas the parents, at least one of them, uh, sometimes both are looking forward. And so it's hard for the adult children to be happy, as happy for the parents, especially the one that wanted the divorce and is looking forward to his or her future. I don't know if you originated this term, Carol, but you talk about the nevers and the adult children are dealing with, I'm never going to see my parents in the same room together. We're never going to have a whole family Thanksgiving or Christmas or, or any other holiday together. And these holidays are annual holidays like 4th of July comes around, birthdays, uh, graduations. If they're young adults, maybe away at college or starting their own career, and all of a sudden they don't have a home to go home to. With the holidays, what do they do? And, and the older ones who are more established maybe just anticipated uh, their children keeping a good relationship with their grandparents, and, and maybe there's a family cabin people go to for holidays, and all those things are gone. Just they're, they're never going to happen again. And, and now how many Thanksgivings do we have to have every year? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, and it also strikes me that the great divorce has happened and now they are back on the scene and mom has a new boyfriend and dad has a new girlfriend. And now this adult child, 30, 40, perhaps even 50 years old, has to have some sort of relationship with this foreigner who's just now part of the family. I mean, that's a lot to manage too. And as you spoke to, they've got their own kids they're worrying about and raising. And now they're supposed to create some sort of and cultivate some sort of relationship with this new person who they still might not really love that much having this person in their life. Right. Or even like that much. Yeah, <laughs> a, lot right. of, a lot of adult children see this new significant other as an intruder which often they are, sometimes they come on too strong and insist that they be present at the family gatherings. Right. And they're basically a stranger. It's very stressful for the adult children. And then if they have children themselves, it's just really not the best situation. And we encourage the parent that is eager to move on, spend time with that new significant other when you're not with your adult children. Because just as minor children need time with their adult parent one-on-one, so do adult children, because that parent-child bond is forever, whether parents want it to be or not. We know that from our attachment theory research for decades and decades. It's from the cradle to the grave, these family relationships. 
whether they're healthy and happy relationships or not so healthy and happy, they're still relationships. And that's what being human is all about. Part of that dynamic that I've witnessed lots of times is where the kids, the adult children may not want the new person to come to a family celebration. And so then the uh, parent will sometimes place the feelings of their new loved one above that of the children. And then that person may only be in their life for six months or three months, you know, 90 day wonders in, in a lot of new romances. And then what's happened is this person that, that they sided with against their child's interest and the children now feel betrayed by the parent. And so the parent doesn't have the new person anymore, but their kids are having a really hard time getting over what they feel to be a betrayal. That's a very fair feeling. Putting, yeah. putting myself in that scenario, I would feel the exact same. Yeah. It's who are they going to talk to about that? Because maybe their friends, the adult child has friends that can handle that. But many, I think many adult grownups might say, oh, well, your dad's back on the dating scene and he's got to, he's got to find love and you, you just got to just deal with it kind of thing, right? <laughs> like just deal with it. But yeah, back no. up, Bucky. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure that's the response that one might get from many. Right. Yeah. Put yeah. your big girl panties on. Right. Yeah. And it's very common. It, yes. It, it, it hurtful for people to get that too. And it does make them feel like there's something wrong with them for feeling this way, which we can understand it because that's what we all do for a living. But other people just think, I guess I'm really defective. I should be over this. Right. There's, there's no playbook, no guidebook for these adult children. And the ones that have reached out to us since the book was published keep saying that, oh my gosh, I finally feel like someone's listening to me because there was nobody that would validate me. I just kept hearing, you weren't six years old when this happened. So you'll, you know, you'll get over it. Like it's no big deal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even just putting myself in that scenario, like I just feel like in my Physically, like as I imagine that, I feel that tension in my mm -hmm. stomach, like how hurtful that would feel mm -hmm. to feel that betrayal. And, and Karen, you may, rec I think we had this in the book, but we, we, or at least I was surprised when really did the numbers on how large this population is in the U.S. alone. And this is a phenomena in the developing world, by the way. We discovered that they have other names for it in other countries. In England, they're called silver splitters. Mm -hmm. and, and in some parts of Canada, at least in Toronto, we heard from uh, some attorneys that they call them diamond divorcees. And we think that the Japanese may have hit it with retired husband syndrome. Oh, <laughs> but in, in the U.S. alone, uh, about 300,000 couples over 50 divorce every year now, and it's growing, which 300,000 couples means 600,000 people. And in that demographic, they have on average one to two children. So that would be another couple of hundred thousand people. So somewhere between 900,000 to 1.2 million people enter this population every year. And because it is such an unserved population, the people who entered it last year and are hurting are still hurting this year. And the right. ones who are entering it this year are probably going to be hurting next year. Indeed. And you speak to that in the book as well about some of the reasons, because of course, the empty nest syndrome, so to speak, we call it in our family life cycle. Mm -hmm. And when we look at that sort of literature that maybe mm -hmm. in years gone by when women didn't have the financial freedom to leave, they may have just stuck it out. In this modern era, people are more willing to say, hmm, maybe that value that I had to remain 
faithful till death do us part, maybe that value is now not as important to me as my value of, I only have one shot at this life and I want to go pursue happiness and it's not going to happen in this marriage. Yes. In fact, Harvard University has been doing a happiness research study since the 40s. And uh, what they have found is that that focus on happiness, it has been continually growing in the adult population. And so it's making it easier for people to say, I'm not happy. I'm looking at how much ever time I have left on this planet. And I don't want to be with this person anymore. And I'm picking that value, the happiness value, over till death do us part. And in fact, some research that was in 2001 indicated that among Americans, about 45% at that time considered divorce morally acceptable. And by 2014, 69% considered it morally acceptable. So again, looking more at honoring the happiness than the till death do us part philosophy. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for some in-depth support, head over to my website, loveandlifemedia.com and click on the work with me tab to schedule a consultation. Consultations will help you clarify underlying emotional and psychological concerns. We'll target limiting beliefs and thought patterns. We'll learn empowering techniques from cognitive therapy to sustainably elevate your mindset and mood. We'll identify relationship dynamics which are impeding your goals and we'll together generate a concrete plan for moving forward to help you thrive in love and life. Schedule your consultation today at loveandlifemedia.com. I'd love to work with you. You spoke to, in the book, you devoted a chapter to something I'd love to flesh out a little bit more with you here, to attachment. And of course, we can go back to Bowlby and Ainsworth and talk about attachment in infancy. But of course, there's been a lot of research since that first wave of attachment theory, looking at how our attachment bonds with our primary caregiver, how those may be related to our romantic attachment in adulthood. And I'm thinking, of course, Shaver and Hazan, some of that research, which you cite in the book as well. Many of the listeners of this podcast are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, some of whom would be adult children of divorce, whether the divorce happened when they were kids or whether the divorce happened recently. And their attachment to their parents now has had this disruption by virtue of the divorce. How might that be related to some of what they're experiencing as they are on the dating scene, trying to forge romantic partnership in adulthood, what would you say to some of these individuals based on the attachment realities that they're facing? We have heard people start to question whether they are even going to be capable of a long-term relationship because the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So they start to doubt, you know, am I going to end up, am I going to be like dad or am I going to be like mom? Am I just going to go out and get married and then break the whole thing up and make other people suffer. A lot of times investing in talking with a skilled therapist just to to find out what's really going on in their life, because certainly convincing evidence that a lot of our major decisions in life are made before we're five. And so in a very real sense, a small child is running many people's lives and they don't <laughs> really know what they're unconscious beliefs are, but call them unconscious because you don't know that they're there. And it's because those stories about themselves 
were created when they were too young to really know what was going on. When you've only been on the planet four or five years, you don't have a lot of experience to compare anything with. And then most of us don't remember those early decisions. We just go through life thinking that the story we told ourselves is really who we are. And without doing some self-exploration, preferably, I think, with with somebody who can guide them, it would be really useful for most people. I sometimes will tell my clients, if you keep picking the wrong person, then you might consider that your picker's broken and don't make any more picks till you get it fixed. <laughs> for sure. There can be problems with the picker. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think it's really important for people to explore that. Because again, the research, and you quoted some of the researchers, Shaver and Hazen, the more recent ones, and they studied romantic love and how it is influenced by our attachment bonds. But uh, the good news is that uh, why I want people to study their uh, attachment bonds and some of the great work that's been written for the lay audience, we give a lot of those resources in the book, is that they can learn that even if you didn't have healthy attachment bonds to your parents, even if they divorced, that isn't the apple that doesn't fall far from the tree. We can learn healthier attachment bonds. So it's not that we're fated forever to have these unhealthy attachment bonds. And many people don't even know about attachment just out in the you know, dating world. So I think it's really important that they look into that and work with someone like you who does know about attachment. Not all therapists are skilled and schooled in attachment theory, and it's very It's the most researched theory in our field still after all these decades. Yeah, it makes so much intuitive sense. And so Mm -hmm. when we are presented with it and we read a couple studies or read a book, I know there was a book a couple years ago, I think it was called Attached and many of my... Yes. Yeah, a lot of of Mm -hmm. the members of my community had read that and wanted to know what my thoughts were. And my thoughts are, yes, it's it's a useful framework through which to understand some of our experiences, but I would hate for someone to lock themselves in. Oh my goodness, I'm damaged because I'm avoidant clearly, right? Or I'm anxious or, and, and then to limit their own potential by virtue of that label that they've put upon themselves. So there's a tension there for me. I love to explore these theories and these frameworks, but I don't want us to get locked in. It can feel so validating to go, oh, okay, I'm not the only one who feels this, but at the same time, if we go, or I guess I'm anxious and I'm always going to scare away all the securely attached people, that's not the case. And Karen, I was thinking when, when you and Carol were talking earlier, and a lot of people will make the choice to go with somebody because, oh good, now somebody likes me or finally I'm going to be happily ever after. And Don't take enough time to really make good choices. And, and I'm thinking of a, a line from Chris Rock, the comedian Chris Rock. He, he said, the first 90 days, you're not meeting me, you're meeting my representative. <laughs> I love that. So I've well heard put, that before. You know, yeah, maybe 100, right? yeah, right. Yeah. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> and, and I was thinking, you know, a Harville Hendricks book on getting the love you want. You know, he used a lot mm-hmm. of these things and made them accessible to lay people. But that idea that, uh, you know, a lot of people will pick someone who reminds them of the parent they didn't particularly get along with. They're not even aware that that's what their choice is based on, but they're still trying to heal that wound. And and that's when I thought of the, the Chris Rock that, you know, at the beginning, each person selling the other person on the idea that I'm there to fill all the holes that everybody left in you. And I'm only here for your every whim. And then 90 to 180 days into the relationship, they feel safe enough to start telling them their wants. And the problem is, I want what I want, and I want it right now. But unfortunately, you want what you want, you want it right now. And now something's going to go wrong. Yeah. 
<laughs> oh, definitely. <laughs> or somebody's going to not. Oh, and somebody said the two most important decisions we'll make in our life. It's really important that you get them in the right order. The quote was, you need to decide where am I going? And after you decide that, then you ask the question, who will go with me? And mm -hmm. if people go, who will go with me ahead of time, somebody's not going to go down the path they really wanted. Exactly. They end up compromising their true goals and values. Well, it reminds me of Erickson, right? Because yes. we, we hit adolescence and we're supposed to work on our identity. And then we move to early adulthood and start working on intimacy. But we can't, like you're saying, we can't know where we're going unless we know who we are. And the more we know who we are, the better suited we are to pick a partner who is a good fit for us for that journey, wherever we're going. And now to partner up hand in hand, as opposed to one person dragging the other along or the other person going, hey, I want to go there, but I don't feel capable. So I'm going to partner with you to fill this void and then I'll feel okay. <laughs> and I'll, yeah, codependency yeah. <laughs> and all sorts of different dynamics yeah. can ensue. Yes. And, and wait, wait, you promised, you promised. <laughs> right, right. Because that representative had all yeah. kinds of lines to yep. say exactly what was needed yes. to yes. hook the person. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You want candy, I got candy. <laughs> you, want, <laughs> you, you hate chocolate, me too. <laughs> right, yeah. Oh yeah. And then later find out that they have this, uh, yeah. <laughs> this is love of yes. Gambling yeah. never touched the stuff. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think maybe some of these gray divorces, in fact, were probably a relic of a time when after a certain stage of life, it was so unacceptable to remain single. And again, there's single shaming now, of course, but mm -hmm. I think certainly in my mother's era, for example, she was 21 when she married my father. Mm -hmm. She was a senior in college and whoo, thank goodness he showed up senior year. He transferred because she was going to be graduating at, you know, God knows what happened then. Exactly. <laughs> so what we're seeing with some of these great divorces is probably people who were never all that great of a fit in the first place, mm -hmm. but it was time to partner up. So they did. Yeah. And again, so then it's interesting to think about what kind of, as you spoke to Bruce, that you with your parents, down deep, you're like, this isn't, I mean, they fight all the time, right? So interesting too, when we think about attachment with our adult children now, as they are pursuing romantic partnership, if they are a product of that great divorce, they may have not had an all that solid of a model throughout their, their mm -hmm. family of origin mm -hmm. with their parents to have that confidence that they can pick a good partner for them. Yes. I, I know Carol does this and you may do this with your own clients. I find it's for people going through, when their parents or themselves are going through a divorce, is to look at their family uh, tri-generationally. Like I'll, I'll ask people, what do you think it was like to be raised by your grandparents? And so they'll start examining their, their mom and their dad, and, and then they'll agree, well, maybe that would have been harder. And then they'll see why their parents the way they are, and, and it can mm. uh, cause them to have more compassion, or at least an understanding. I wanted to add, too, there's a group, a population here that we haven't talked about yet. The research indicates that there's a lot of second and third marriages among the great divorce population. And that gets even more complicated with sometimes there are biological children in the second or even the third marriage. And then you can imagine the extended families there and cousins and step cousins and all of this. So uh, we're talking to those people, too because they, it's, they're still in the gray divorce population, which is 45 to 50 years old and older. And we know that many parents you know, remarry. Maybe they were married in their 20s, but they divorced in their 40s. And a lot of them are still going on to creating new families. So that's a population that is touched by this gray divorce 
uh, phenomenon as well. That strikes me as just a lot to manage as we spoke to earlier, yes. right? We talked about all the complexities with holidays yes. and who is sitting yes. where and who's coming to what and I'm not going mm-hmm. if he's showing up. And yep. and then you add these multiple perhaps marriages yes. and then multiple family connections that have been forged mm-hmm. throughout some of those adult children. I wonder if at times they recoil and just think, you know what, this, this is just too much. I, I, I can't. I got to focus in on what I can control, which would be my home here with my kids and maybe just leave some of this extended family connections, just leave them be. I wonder if you see that. Yes. Yes, they do. They, a lot of them just, you you said recoil, they just withdraw as minor children do. When we don't know what else to do, we leave, right? That's what humans do generally or fight, but usually it's the kids are, are leaving and finding their own peace and their own family, trying to anyway. And it's important for people who are listening to realize that you know, this, this first divorce rate in the United States is hovers around 50%. Second divorce rates higher in the 60s and third divorce rate is in the 70s. So there are lots of opportunities to have myriad combinations of family dynamics. And often people really do need help from professionals or clergy, you know, to help them move through all of this. And, and the adult children shouldn't have to lose their family of origin and those relationships, extended family, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, because again, as I said earlier, family and relationships are forever. Family relationships are forever. Karen, Carol mentioned at the beginning in introducing herself that about collaborative divorce in, in Orange County, that we're both co-founders of, of that chapter in Southern California where we are, Collaborative Divorce Solutions. And so we work with attorneys who, for the most part, no longer litigate. They won't litigate. They'll only do alternative dispute processes like mediation and, and collaborative. And the reason I brought that up right now is when Carol was talking about the statistics for marriages, in the non-adversarial processes, people actually learn communication skills and they learn to understand themselves better. So they have better tools for the next time they go out to form a relationship. And so that's one of the advantages of those. And unfortunately, in our country, most people only know about litigation, which we often see as combat divorce. And in in that process where it really can be a war, people don't learn how to be better. They just learn how to win or or tolerate losing. But that's not a good basis for going on to have a new relationship. Right. We're going to experience these valleys in life. And the best we can do is to do our best to learn what we can so that we can grow and then take some of that learning process, those skills that we can learn to the next relationship, to our next partnership. It's so great connecting with all of you via the podcast, and I would love to meet you IRL. If your organization is looking for a speaker for your next event, check out my website, go to the speaking page, and see the content that I love to talk about. Just like on the podcast, in my speeches, I cover a wide array of topics grounded in psych research, of course. I'd love to meet you and share strategies for thriving in all realms of love and life with you and your organization. I cannot recommend Dr. Karen enough as your speaker at your event. As my keynote speaker, she completely set the tone of compassion, self-love, and authenticity that bled into everything we did for the rest of the event. She was incredibly prepared and present and went above and beyond when it came to sharing the event with her audience. 
Her knowledge, magnetic energy, and expertise while on stage is one thing. It will be everything you'd hope for and more for your audience. But her giving spirit and willingness to do more than simply show up when it's time to go on is icing on the cake. She walks her talk, and by the end of working with her, I was wishing she lived down the block from me for weekly meetups. For more information and to book me to speak at your next event, contact my producer, Tim May. Tim at loveandlifemedia.com. Another thing you touched on in the book is some of the boundary work that would be kind of part of this communication, how to speak, how to create boundaries for these adult children when parents maybe are trying to align with them and trying to make them their support system and trying to have some boundaries surrounding, well, dad, this is your third marriage now. And I I don't see myself having this really intimate relationship with your third wife, that sort of thing. So can you speak a little bit about that? Uh, We want the adult children to know that they can say these things in kind ways. For example, dad, I really love you. You know, you're my dad forever. I'm just not comfortable being around your third wife, second wife, At this point in my life, maybe down the road, I've got to take care of myself, my spouse, my children, if they're married, uh, first. And it's kind of like they say in the airlines, put the oxygen mask on yourself first and then on the children. And the adult children need to do that for themselves. And that isn't a bad, mean thing. It's actually a healthy step to take to learn what are healthy boundaries. And we can do it in a loving, caring way. It doesn't guarantee that the parent's going to receive it in a loving, caring way. They could be very hurt and upset and angry. But over time, if we learn how to set healthy boundaries like that, it can really improve relationships. Yeah. And I think it's helpful and healthy with our families to try some of those boundaries Mm -hmm. with them. And then maybe we can generalize some of those skills that we've acquired to other relationships. That boundary work is so fundamental and so, so important. And it can feel so threatening because we do fear that we will, by putting up a boundary that we may lose the relationship or damage the relationship but we can be loving in the way that we speak to these boundaries. And Mm -hmm. in fact, I think it's unloving not to establish boundaries because then who are we presenting ourselves as? We're not being authentic in our relationships if we don't have boundaries. One of the things we also notice when people are either remarried or they're dating, one of the things that happens with the adult children, it changes one of the fundamental dynamics of, you know, when, you, when you're raised by your parents and you move out of the house you, and, and you're in the neighborhood, you might just drop over to see how they're doing. Or in, in many cases, you might still have a key to their house, you know, in case, you know, you needed to get something, they're not home or they just expect you to walk in or, you know, because it's your parents. But when your parent is now cohabitating or married to another person, you can't do that. You can't just drop in. And a lot of the uh, relationship becomes self-conscious. Yeah, that happens a lot also when somebody's widowed. Your kids, you know, lose that ease of, you know, when I say ease, even if it was a difficult relation, if it's, if there's a certain ease of the familiarity. And, you know, you still got your family and you still got your parents the way they were and everything's the same. And, and now everything's not only different, but now it's always going to be different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I actually am good friends with a woman who is the wife of a man who was widowed. And the relationships can be 
she's this lovely, wonderful, loving, warm woman, but it's hard because she knows that at some level, her husband's daughters and they're in their twenties, they may find that if they attach to her, it could feel as if they're betraying their mother who passed away. Mm -hmm. It's so complex. And that may not be available. That feeling of like, if I'm attaching to her, I'll be betraying my mother. They may not even realize that. It might not be conscious as we spoke to earlier. That may not be something they're aware of. Right, right. And that's a good example of what we mean by from attachment theory that family relationships are forever. So even if the mother has passed, the adult child still feels attached to that mother. Even though Bowlby said from the cradle to the grave, we know it goes past the grave as long as the adult children are alive or grandchildren. These bonds are very powerful. Right. And nobody would be surprised if a child was depressed or mourned or really hurt and shaken up by a parent's death. So it's logical to understand that they're going to be just as shaken by the death of their family. Even if nobody actually physically died, their life as they knew it is over just as if somebody had died. It's a massive loss. It's a massive loss. And our culture, we're not so great dealing with loss. No, we're not. (laughs) We really don't have, talk about tools. We don't have the tools. Uh, Would you make that a double, please? Yeah. Yes, I was thinking the same thing, Bruce. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. And yet these parental bonds, as you point to a study from Johns Hopkins that was began in the 40s, mm-hmm. looking at a, 1,100 medical students and looking at their connections to their families of origin, their parents, and then their physical health as well. In addition to, I'm sure, many other variables they were testing for, the study found that those adult children who had positive feelings and positive connections to their parents, even into their adulthood, were less likely to get cancer. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's one body. And a lot of other health issues. Yes. Mm-hmm. One body. Yes. Yeah. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah. I know. We'd still do this mind body dual. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. I used to work with people with injuries. And I remember I was just always astonished when an insurance company would agree to pay for the shoulder, but the doctor wasn't allowed to touch the neck as if they're separate. You know, you can't have one without the other. You know, Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's all connected. And anyone who knows, who's ever had a, a pulled muscle in the hip, they know that the knee starts to hurt because it's <laughs> right. some other part of the body's compensating, right? <laughs> right. right. Yeah. If you have just a few seconds to help me out, I would so appreciate it. You can do so by heading over to Apple Podcasts, giving us a five-star rating and a few sentences of review that helps others find the program and join the Love and Life family. So as we wrap up, what sorts of final takeaway messages would you like to share with the audience? And then, of course, let them know where they can find the book and connect with you if you're available on social media or if you do consultations remotely or or wherever they can get a little bit more of what you have to offer. Well, we want people to know the adult children that you're not alone, that your feelings are very valid, whatever they are. And we want the parents to know that one of the best things you can do is deeply listen to your adult children, even if you don't agree with what they're feeling or saying they're experiencing. It's their feelings and their experiences. And that is one way that you can help your adult children heal. And gosh, maybe even yourself as well, parents, because you will be helping repair those bonds that become so stressed, those attachment bonds during the divorce process. It's inevitable that those bonds become stressed. 
and we are on social media. And if you just Google our names, it comes up. The book has a website, homewillneverbethesameagain.com. It has its own Facebook page. We're both on Facebook and LinkedIn. The book has its own Instagram. And I'm on Instagram too, at Dr. Carol Hughes. Bruce? And also, we have a column with Psychology Today, so we can be found on there too. And one of the things I like to leave people with is everybody in your family going through divorce. It's a new event. They've never been through this before. And even if they have, this one's going to be different. And so when you don't know what to do, Choosing kindness is always a good choice, and that includes being kind to yourself and as well as being kind to the other members of your family because, again, at the end of the day, when the divorce is over, we've talked about attachment a lot. These are the people that are going to be in your life forever. And if they're physically missing in their life, they're still going to be in your heart, in your head, in your memory. So if you're kind to each other, you have a better chance of healing later on. So important. We just need more kindness, I think, in general. Oh, yes, definitely. And then, Bruce, where can people find you? You said you mentioned a Psychology Today column that you have. Yes, yes. And and also, I'm on Facebook at uh, Bruce uh, Fredenberg LMFT. And I'm on LinkedIn. And if you just Google my name, Bruce Fredenberg, and it's Fredenberg U-R-G, and you'll find me and you'll find my contact uh, information on, on a lot of pages. And the book also has a, a blog on Psychology Today, and it's Home Will Never Be the Same Again, Helping Families of Gray Divorce. Wonderful. Thank you again so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I really appreciate your work. I think it's so important. Likewise. Thank you, Karen, for having us. Yes, yes. We really appreciate this. And we want people to have this information. So it's so nice of you to share your platform with us. Oh, you bet. The love and life hack for this week is no matter what age you are when your parents divorce, home will never be the same. Your grief and loss are normal and valid emotions. I hope this conversation and the work of Carol and Bruce and others will help you as you move through the pain and consider ways to heal. As always, I extend a huge thank you to all of you for listening and for being a part of the Love and Life family. For more information on all things love and life, head over to my website, loveandlifemedia.com. Sign up for my newsletter so we can stay in touch and you'll be the first to know about all things love and life. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abril.